Well, if you have your Bibles, turn to the Gospel of Matthew. The Gospel of Matthew. If you're using the Bible that's provided for you in the pew rack in front of you, that is on page 1,025. 1,025. We have paused our series in Isaiah. And we are spending just a couple of weeks in Matthew as we walk around the birth narrative of Christ. We're going to be in Isaiah 1, chapter, or chapter 1, verses 1 to 17. But before we get into it, let's pray. God, as we open Isaiah, not Isaiah, Matthew. Well, we know where Stephen's head's at. Um, as we open Matthew, wherever we open your word, we ask, O oh God, meet us by your word, by your power. Meet us in your mercy. Lord, show us the depths the reach the vast Christ and help us to grab hold of him with everything we have and then to know that as we hold on to him It is actually Him holding on to us. Lord, we need this. We ask it desperately but expectantly. Knowing that You are faithful to Your people through Your Word. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. It was in that holiday classic, that the great line is uttered, if I woke up with my head sewn to the carpet tomorrow, I would not be more surprised than I am right now. What movie is that from? Anybody? Who says it? Yes, Clark Griswold at Christmas Vacation. More of you knew that, but you just didn't want to say it. Clark Griswold, as he has lit all, finally gotten all the Christmas lights lit, and the family is out in the yard celebrating, and unbeknownst to him, Cousin Eddie has shown up. If you're unfamiliar with Cousin Eddie, every family's got one. He has the metal plate in the head, the RV that smells way too bad with plumbing problems, and the not-so-adorable, smelly dog named Snot. And Eddie has shown up for Christmas. We laugh at Cousin Eddie's. We don't invite him to our Christmases sometimes, as Clark didn't, but Eddie still showed up. But if we're honest, there's something about family that it's easy to laugh at on the screen, on the movie screen, but it's harder to understand and digest in person. That's because our families, we can find in some ways that they can be complicated. They can be chaotic, they can be confusing, they can be challenging, they can be full of conflict. And the thing that sometimes makes us uneasy about our families, if we're honest about it, as we consider our families, our our, our ancestors, as we consider the line from which we came from, we have to recognize, we have to acknowledge, we have to deal with the fact I came from these people. I remember still very nervously when I was driving with Amanda uh, from 
where we went to college, we had met and we were driving home to meet my family for the first time. And it was such a long way. We were going to be staying there for a week. Boy, talk about going all in there. If that goes bad after a couple hours, well, we're we're still here for another week. Um, Thankfully, it went well. Uh, But there's that nervousness. Well, today, we acknowledge, we recognize that learning about our families tells us about ourselves. And what we're going to see in Matthew chapter 1 is we're going to learn about Jesus' family. And we're going to learn about Jesus, but also about ourselves. We're going to learn things that are hopefully deeply moving, deeply beautiful, deeply compelling about Christ, but also deeply honest about ourselves. See, what I'm going to argue for you today from Matthew 1, verses 1 to 17, is that the family that Jesus came from, the family Jesus came from gives us hope as the people that he came for. The family that Jesus came from gives you and me and us as a church hope with all of our baggage, with all of the things that we carry in here as the people that he came for. It's going to be in Matthew 1, verses 1 to 17. First, we're going to see two ways that this plays out. We're going to see truths about Jesus and ourselves and then trust, what it means for us to trust him ourselves and trust him as he is. First, the truth about Jesus, just starting Matthew 1. This, it, it, verse 1, it starts out, follow along, read it there. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Right at the outset here, now, now pause right here. So this word genealogy uh, it has the same root, it, it could mean genesis or starting point. So in, in one sense, you might read this, you, you, you could understand this rightly as the genesis of Jesus Christ. The starting point. We're learn, laying the baseline facts about where this guy comes from. And so Matthew here, is, is, is in laying these baseline facts, he makes a few uh, striking claims. Jesus Christ, Jesus the Christ, Jesus the Messiah, the promised Messiah that the people of Israel have been anticipating. And Matthew is a Jewish man writing to a Jewish audience. This gospel is full of Jewish references, allusions to the Old Testament. And he's saying right at the outset here, just so there's no confusion, I am telling you that Jesus is the Christ. And then he ties this into two prominent, two significant, arguably the two most significant figures of the Old Testament, is he says the son of David and the son of Abraham. The people of Israel were anticipating the son of David. They were anticipating this one who would be this king who would come after the greatest king that they had ever had, King David, and that he would be one who would reign as their Messiah, their conqueror, their hero, their champion, their rescuer. And Abraham, his heritage, or his... His lines dates all the way back to the earliest parts, uh, uh, early parts of Genesis. Genesis chapters 12 uh, through 15. You can read all about God calling Abraham to himself. And Abraham is called out as this figure who's this model, this exemplary figure of faith of the people of Israel. So what Matthew is laying out here for is that Jesus is the promised coming king whom you have waited on by faith. Who will be the Messiah who will rescue you. It's a bold claim. Verse 1, chapter 1. Now he's going to start to un- unwind it for us. He's going to start to unwind it. Now, one thing that we have to understand as we start to see this unwound and as we consider Jesus the Christ, the son of Abraham, the son of David, is, I, I don't know how many of you might be like this, but 
I am not an artist. My wife, Amanda, she's an artist. She actually uh, uh, studied art and, and, and uh, uh, yeah, she's got that art background and things. So there have been times where we've gone to museums or been looking at paintings or whatever. And, and, and I've looked at a painting. I've looked at it like, like and tried to look at it from this angle and then like, okay, am I supposed to see it? Like, what am I looking at here? And, and, and even looking around, like, I think they hung the painting upside down because I'm not... I'm not seeing it here. And, and, and what Amanda will tell you very quickly is I have zero eye for art. I don't know good art from bad art. I don't know what's valuable, what's pretty, what's not, what isn't. Um, but what I have found is that, that Matthew is not giving us the opportunity to leave the, the picture of Jesus up to the eye of the beholder. It's in vogue in our day and age. It's, in vogue. it's been in vogue across the, the span of time. And this is why Matthew is writing this. For, for people to try to assume, well, okay, I think Jesus is this, I think Jesus is this. When I look at the artwork of Jesus and his life and his teaching and all that he did, I think he's kind of more like this. And what Matthew's saying is, yeah, that's all cute, but that's not what he's here for, man. See, I'm giving you a clear bedrock foundational example, uh, uh, description of who he is, what he's come to do, and what that means for you. And so it fundamentally confronts us right at the outset with what are we going to say about who Jesus is? The most important question any of us can ask in, the, in this room, not only today, but in, in the course of our lives, is who do I say that Jesus is? Because when I start to ask who do I say Jesus is, and I start to probe and, and pursue and try to get to the root of that answer, then that forces me to start to ponder the question, and who does Jesus say that I am? And then that can fundamentally alter and change your life. Because it confronts you with a new, a greater, a, a more important, pertinent reality than you know apart from him. But anyway, Matthew is making it very clear who Jesus is. He is the Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Now, as he's going here, I want us to see how not only do we see truth about Jesus, but also we see truth about ourselves. The word Genesis, uh, genealogy, as I said, reference could, could be Genesis, so it's this beginning. And, and throughout a genealogy, sometimes you might read genealogies in your Bible and just kind of find yourself just like, like, like kind of falling asleep, like, like just, oh man, this is, this is happening over and over and over again. Uh, you know, is this, is this a, a 2,000 year ago Israelite baby naming book? It's just name after name after name after name. The word father is said 39 times in this genealogy. And it's just... Literally, thousands of years of history. Just pull out a section of it. Verse 9, And Uzziah, the father of Jotham, and Jotham, the father of Ahaz, Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah, Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh, Manasseh, the father of Amos, Amos, the father of Josiah, Josiah, the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. And you might be cautious, you, you might be, at first glance, read that and think, okay, what am I supposed to get from that? Matthew has not made it. Matthew, believe it or not, he is not trying to bore his audience to death right at the outset of his letter. There's power to this. And perhaps the first place that we see the power of it, apart from the introduction of who Jesus is in verse 1, but perhaps the first place we see the power of it and we see how it starts to directly force us to be truthful about ourselves is not in all the references to the 39 times a father is mentioned. But the few times a mother is mentioned, a woman is mentioned. Look at these in verses 3 through 6. And Judah was the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar. So that's the first woman mentioned in this genealogy, Tamar. I'm just going to read these and we'll file them away and then we'll discuss them. 
Tamar, and Perez, the father of Hezron, and Hezron, the father of Ram, and Ram, the father of Aminadab, the father of Nashon, and Nashon, the father of Salmon, and Salmon, the father of Boaz, by Rahab, there's woman number two, by Rahab, and Boaz, the father of Obed, by Ruth, there's woman number three, Ruth, and Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of David the king, and David was the father of Solomon, by the wife of Uriah. So there's woman number four. So you have Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, the wife of Uriah. Uh, her name is Bathsheba, if you're unfamiliar with that. And then there's only one more woman mentioned throughout this whole genealogy, and that's Mary when we get to Jesus. So fathers are mentioned 39 times, and we have these four women and then a fifth being Mary mentioned. And what, do we, what we start to see in this genealogy, and as we start to wrestle with what the truth of it says about us, remember the idea of the family Jesus came from or the kind of people he came for, is we have to start to learn about some of these women. Now, we're going to get to the men in a second. So a, hold on a second here. Because the, the men are not upstanding characters in this story. But Tamar, if you're familiar, you might remember her name from the book of Genesis. Like, okay, I'm trying to... I remember Sarah. I remember Rebecca. I remember Rachel. I remember Leah. I'm having a hard time with Tamar. Yeah, the Israelite audience that Matthew wrote to, they would have had a hard time with Tamar too. In their folklore, there were the, the matriarchs of the faith, the Sarahs, the Re- Rebecca's, the Rachel's, the Leah's, they were, they were held up as models, as exemplars for the people of Israel to look up to. Tamar? Not so much. In Genesis chapter 38, Tamar, whose husband had just passed away and, and wanted to have children, she decided to dress herself up like a prostitute and seduce her father-in-law and have children with him. So that's Tamar. Well, let's go on. Rahab. In Joshua 2, Rahab didn't one time dress up like a prostitute. Rahab actually was a prostitute. Let's go on to Ruth. Ruth is mentioned. Now, there's a whole book named after Ruth. And Ruth is a woman who, uh, we, we see her as a model and as exemplar of faith and of, of devotion to the God of Israel and, and the God of these people whom she has come to know. But she was a Moabite. The Moabites were a a people, an ethnicity, a nation born out of, stretching back into Genesis, Genesis chapter 19, a guy named Lot who had an incestuous relationship with his daughters. So you got Tamar, you got Rahab, you got Ruth. And then you have in verse 6, as if it couldn't be any more clear, The latter part of verse 6. It's the start of a new paragraph there. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. Her name is Bathsheba. Doesn't even say it there. What do you think Matthew's getting at there? Kind Kind of twisting the knife, right? Hey, Israel, this is your line. So what the genealogy of Jesus forces us to do, what Christmas forces us to do, is not only be honest with ourselves about who Christ is, but be honest with ourselves about who we are. Now, like I said, as Matthew is starting to indicate that the family line of Jesus isn't as great as one might, might think, we're not just going to stop at the women there. The women, in, in many ways, were bold examples of faith in God. The men had their struggles. Abraham, let's just take Abraham and David right at the outset. 
David, verse 6 there. David fathered Solomon by the wife of Uriah. That reminds us of a quite shameful time in David's life and in the history of Israel. David is king. He sees Bathsheba. He's like, hey, I think I'd like to know her better. And he ultimately conceives a child with Bathsheba. The problem is Bathsheba is married to a guy named Uriah who is out fighting a war right now. So David and Bathsheba conceive a child and David then realizes, okay, we got a problem here. So ultimately he tries to fix it. He can't gets worse and ultimately he has Uriah murdered as king he has Uriah who's out fighting a war sent to the front of the line and then sent to his death in war Abraham Abraham took a long time learning how to trust God full of many fits and starts stops and starts ups and downs lefts and rights it's not believing God for the promises he had made One time Abraham tried to give his wife away to another man because he was fearing for his own safety. One time Abraham uh, conceived a child with a woman named Hagar because him and his wife Sarah did not trust God. So Abraham, a model of slow faith. Okay, David, Abraham, there's other women that are mentioned. We could keep going, you know, if you want to. A guy named Judah. Remember Joseph who was sold into slavery? Judah's the one that sold him into slavery. Solomon, David's son. Polygamous, idolater, Rehoboam, and Abijah. In this genealogy, they are both referred to in the Old Testament. God describes them as kings who did wicked. Manasseh, he led Israel away from worshiping the one true God, their God, and led them to worshiping false gods. And then Ahaz, Manasseh, he sacrificed his own children to these false gods. The family line is taking some shots, isn't it? I don't know if I should say this. I might offend some of you. Yeah, I'll go for it. Half of you that won't be offended are really intrigued by what I'm going to say right now. A lot of us can be pretty proud of our family lines, right? Around here, you meet somebody whose ancestors were on the Mayflower, and they'll tell you in like five seconds. That's the part that would offend. I understand. I get it. For much of my life, I thought I was related to Francis Scott Key, who wrote the National Anthem. I told everybody. And then I realized I wasn't. Oops. Key was my grandma's maiden name, and I didn't know how to read a family tree book. And I thought, oh, there's Francis Scott. Actually, the introduction of the book just said, yeah, there were keys in Virginia like Francis Scott Key, but we don't know of any ties to them in the keys in Texas who were my keys, so whatever. We like to be proud of our family lines. We like to feel good about them. We like to think we came from good stock. And Matthew's saying to the people of Israel who are receiving this, you've got to be honest with yourself. got to be honest with yourself when you worry about what does my family line say about who i am we can carry a haunting unease about who exactly we are maybe it's not just your family line but maybe it's yourself today when you say i would fit in with jesus's family tree the good news is The line that Jesus came from 
helps us to understand the people he came for. I think that's what Matthew is getting at here. Murderers, pagans, promiscuous, idolaters, the greedy, the angry, those who sought out conflict with other people, those who were insensitive, those who were uncaring, those who were harsh, those who had temper problems, those who were angry, those who were covetousness, those who were violent, those who are uncomfortable in their own skin, those who live a life of worry and anxiety, those who who, uh, uh, knew relational conflict and strife and knew Christmases all alone, those who knew and, and felt much to be proud of. All sorts of people compose this line of Jesus. And so if we're going to understand verse 1, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, David, the son of Abraham, and we're going to understand this Jesus Christ, we've got to first understand ourselves. We've got to get the truth. We've got to lay aside any pretense, any sense of, 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 of fluff and lies about who we are. And then when we lay that, see who Christ is. So truth to trust. Let's get honest about ourselves. One pattern throughout this genealogy, so you have these big, these big movements throughout the story, okay? You have Jesus Christ, son of David, son of Abraham. So you have Abraham mentioned in verse 2, then you look at verse 6, you have David, then verse, uh, at the end of verse 11, you have Josiah, the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon, and then verse 12, after the deportation to Babylon, and then it gets down to Christ, and then it's restated again in verse 17. Here's what's happening in one sense. Not only is Matthew wanting his audience to see and to understand the kinds of people that Jesus came from, he's wanting them to see on a corporate level, on a national level, this continue to decline into their own spiritual ruin, into their own national ruin, so that they can be uh, uh, stripped away of any kind of national pride or hyperinflated dishonor sense of self-worth. They were deported to Babylon. If you're familiar with what's going on in Isaiah, as we've spent time in there, they're deported to Babylon not because of, oh, oh, shit, they caught a bad break, but because of their own sin. So this line is tracing from Abraham all the way down through the people of Israel continuing to struggle, to struggle, to struggle, to struggle, to struggle, to, struggle, to worship God and to the point where they eventually just say, okay, forget God, we're going to worship other gods. So Jesus came that his people might come back to him. Jesus came so that you, perhaps you're here for reasons beyond your own imagination, that you might come to him. You might see the honesty of who you are and the honesty of who he is. Come in honesty of who you are and embrace him. There's a uh, gentleman who was a Jewish convert to Christianity named Marvin wrote he wrote of this genealogy in Matthew chapter 1 and the way he described it is that he converted through reading this genealogy that's interesting right the power of the word of God the way he described it is Rosenthal was a U.S. Marine and the way he described it was that they would have a shooting practice out at uh, uh, a base, 
there'd, there'd be targets that were 200, 300, and 500 yards out. And so he said that uh, there'd have to be a guy down in this trench or this hole out by the target so that when guys were shooting, because they couldn't tell with the naked eye from that far out if they were hitting the target or not. So after 10 shots were fired, this guy would climb up out of his hole and go look at the target and tell how many direct hits there were. So he had this like disc on a pole that if, if there were, say, 6 out of 10 direct hits, he would hold up the disc 6 times, 6 out of 10, so they could see it, and okay, we got a 6 out of 10. But if somebody hit it 10 out of 10 times, he would just go up there, hold it up, and just spin it around once and lower it. What Rosenthal said, based on his Jewish background and his understanding of his Old Testament and all of that, he started to read the genealogy of Jesus, and he started to realize that Jesus hit the bullseye 10 out of 10 times as to what the people of Israel had been waiting for. So maybe you you come from a Jewish background, or or you're Jewish, and, and maybe you need to start dealing today with whether or not Christ truly is the Messiah. Or maybe you're not from a Jewish background, but maybe you're starting to realize that you have needs in your life, in your heart, that, only, that, that nothing else can itch, nothing else can satisfy. And you're starting to have to wrestle with this Jesus who's presented by Matthew as the Christ as to whether or not he is the one that your heart has been longing for. Whether or not you need to abandon all that you hung close to building up yourself your reputation your esteem and lay it aside and come and live in christ so what matthew's showing us here is that there's no room for spiritual pride his audience in his day were a people who were incredibly proud They thought they knew God. They kept the laws of the Old Testament, or as they understood them out of the Old Testament, they kept the rituals, the celebrations. They observed all the uh, uh, important days on the calendar. They, They were careful about observing the Sabbath. They were doing all of these things that they thought made themselves right with God. And yet Matthew is saying, you do not know your God. Be careful this Christmas season. Take this Christmas, Christmas 2021, to consider whether or not you know this Jesus or whether or not you simply just know about Jesus. The way that you can start to diagnose whether or not this is true It's not do I have head knowledge of who he is and things that he did. But have I surrendered knowledge of who I am to him. To the point that I have come now to him. Yielded myself before him and said, Christ. I fit in with your family. Not because... I measure up and I'm marrying into a great family. But because these are the kinds of people that I know I am. Everything from evil, murderers, to prideful, doing everything by the book, wealth beyond compare. Everybody is described in Jesus' family that you and I might enter into his family. If we'll come to him in faith.
If you'd like to discuss this more or learn more about what it means to follow Christ, I'd love to talk about this with you after our service. Feel free to just grab me. We can talk. So it requires that we be honest about ourselves. But then trust. We see the truth of Christ in ourselves and then we trust Him with ourselves. And we trust Him by hoping in Christ. Verse 16, And Jacob was the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called the Christ. You know, can I... Can I this, this, is, this is really cool to me. At least I thought it was really cool. You start to wonder, why did Matthew pick out these women who are mentioned? The four women that we touched on earlier? I think what he's getting at here is that you and I as readers might initially read this and know the story of these women... And be shocked that the Messiah would come from this kind of line. Particularly this kind of line with its sexual background. And what Matthew is going to hold up now as he brings Mary into the picture. Is he's going to say there is an even far greater miracle about the coming of Christ. Not that he would come from sinners, but that he would come from the divine action of God sending him through a virgin. Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations. And from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations. And from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. Got this repetition, 14 generations, 14 generations. Why is this here? I think what we're seeing here is the perfect timing of God that Matthew is showing us. Matthew is showing us that Jesus has come right when God the Father set apart. God's divine initiative in your life is always right on time. And maybe that divine initiative is today, is now. Whether in calling you to faith in Himself, calling you to repent of your sin and believe in Him, or just reminding you yet again as you are walking through a dry season, dear Christian, that the quiet hand of God is not the absent hand of God. And He wants you. That when you wrestle with the delays of God, we can remember the arrival of Christ. Now this confronts us as we conclude the force that we must consider the line that Jesus has come from in order to rightly understand ourselves and what it means to enter into the family of Christ. This may be really easy for you. Maybe your family's a wreck. Opens his doors wide and welcomes you into his table to come and feast on his grace. This Christmas season, the only, opportunity, the only option that we don't have 
is to assume that Christ has come and that His coming is of no importance for us because the gap between God and man is too vast. Or the gap between 2,000 years ago and today is too far. Or the knowledge of Christ and what He is able to do and the trials and the hardships that you are experiencing in your life right now is just too far of a reach and He does not know what you are walking through. Do not believe such. Let these names in Matthew 1 tell you that Christ knew exactly the kind of people that He came for. Because they were the people that He came from. He invites you into His family. He invites you to come feast at the table of His grace. Clark Griswold said to Eddie that day, I wouldn't be any more surprised if I woke up tomorrow morning and my head was sewn to the carpet. If we understand this rightly, we shouldn't be any more surprised, not that Cousin Eddie is here, but that we are all Cousin Eddie's and Christ has welcomed us into his family. Let's pray. God, you have sent your Son not to be observed, but to be adored. To establish and to birth a new family of redeemed, rescued, born anew, Saved by grace. Followers of Christ. I pray you would help my brothers and sisters who perhaps they're struggling with trusting you in the midst of time and delays and confusion. Help them to see in the birth of Christ that you are God who keeps his promises. For brothers and sisters who feel as if Christ is, or those who perhaps aren't Christians yet, who feel as if Christ is lacking of importance or significance for their life today. Help them to see the claims of Matthew. Christ has come. As the song says, the hopes and fears of all the years are met in Christ tonight. Lord, for those of us who are desperately reliant upon Christ and His grace, day by day, moment by moment, let us gladly pull up a seat at the table of mercy and feast this Christmas season. Feast because Christ has reserved us a seat. He has thrown open the doors of the banquet hall. He has prepared for us an abundant feast of His love, of His grace, 
is wiping the tears from our eyes. The family Jesus came from. May this be a reminder and a hope for us as the people that he came for. We pray this in his name. Amen.